The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Faculty Futures Lab. I'm DJ Hopkins. I'm a professor at San Diego State University. This episode of Faculty Futures Lab is part of a new series that I'm calling How to Professor, in which I talk to professors about how they got good at the things they do. Today, I want to talk about teaching. And my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Pollard. Hi, Beth. Hi, DJ. Dr. Pollard is Distinguished Professor in Teaching Excellence at San Diego State University, where she teaches courses in Roman history, world history, and witchcraft studies. More recently, Dr. Pollard has co-founded San Diego State's brand new Center for Comics Studies. Hey, Beth, here's an observation. You seem to love teaching. Now, I've never seen you teach, but I've seen you talk about teaching. And so I've come to this conclusion. Am I right? Ah, that's such a great question. Uh, I think uh, I am curious. And as I uh, mentioned, I think to you before, I love learning. And uh-huh. I think that curiosity and that love of learning conveys to my students. I, I know a lot of people think you know, teachers are these selfless individuals who throw themselves into their you know, students. Uh, but mm-hmm. I have a different view. I I feel like teaching is this intensely selfish act. You show Uh up to a room, you have set up a conversation of your own choosing based on readings and activities that you have set. And I'm incredibly humbled that students show up ready for the ride. And, And I think that humility is so crucial to teaching. And also not taking yourself very seriously. I take teaching very seriously, but not myself very seriously. And I think that I think that conveys to students. That's a really interesting set of ingredients, both acknowledging the selfishness of the occasion of teaching, while also being humble about the fact that you are there in front of other people doing this very selfish thing. Exactly. I know you've taught large classes before, and I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, when I first started teaching the giant courses here at San Diego State University, um, yeah, the 500 student courses, right. I was so humbled. I, I realized I'm going to walk into this room of 500 people, and I expect to stand at the front of that room, start talking, and have them stop talking and listen to me. And, and 500 I was, of them, exactly. 500 students. And you realize I've got to walk into this room and do something that is worth them being there. I, and make the experience not just about me, but about them and the moment. I, and yeah, my great fear was that they were going to throw tomatoes and you know, old lettuce at me. Uh, <laughs> and I, I always had this plan for how would I get out of here if the cabbage starts flying? Uh, but uh, luckily, the cabbage never flew. Uh, the worst I had was students uh, e-shopping in the back of the room. And I never blamed that on them. Yeah, I, I blamed that on myself, the need to huh. do better, be more interesting. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm just aware that it's a trust. Teaching is a trust. Mm. Uh, students come into the room trusting 
that I'm going to lay out something that's worth doing, and I've plotted a course to get us there, and uh, and I am the guardian of that trust, and I, I I need to live up to it. I love that. Beth. Thank you, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> Beth, you are among other things a comic book specialist. So forgive me. I'm going to put this in comics terms. I want to talk to you about your origin story, specifically your background as a teacher. And so I want to go back to your doctoral studies. When did you first think, I know, I need to get an advanced degree in ancient Rome, witchcraft, and comic books? Shockingly, there is no PhD program in ancient Rome, witches, and comic books. But yet, yet, yet exactly. Uh, but what I would say is I, I began my course of study uh, thinking that I was going to explore, and you're going to be shocked by this, that I was going to explore the way that the Roman military facilitated mm -hmm. the spread of Christianity in mm -hmm. Rome's eastern provinces. That so sounds if, like a really good topic. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, and yeah. if you looked back at my uh, grad school application, I made quite the convincing case for why mm -hmm. uh, and how uh, yeah. one uh, could and should uh, study the spread of Christianity into Rome's eastern provinces. Uh, but in my fourth semester of grad school, and this is pretty funny, actually, I'm going to point to a teacher. Uh, it was Professor James O'Donnell, uh, who was quite experimental in the class that he had set up. We were going to take this uh, Latin text that had never been translated before, uh, the Apology of Apuleius, uh, so the Defense of Apuleius, in which this individual, he was a uh, uh, um, a man from North Africa in the second century CE. Uh, so he was defending himself on a charge of magic. And one aspect of that charge of magic was that he had bewitched his wife, Pudentilla, uh, an old woman, super old, 40 years old at least. Oh, uh, he wow. had bewitched her to marry him. Why would any woman get married to someone after the age of 40, right? So it's every, yeah, exactly. Who knows? Uh, and uh, every student in the class had to pick a topic into which they would do a deep dive. So I picked this woman, Pudentilla. I just found her fascinating for some reason. Uh, she was a woman whose words were manipulated by both sides of the legal case. So she's quoted in the text uh, by both the accusers and by the defendant. And both sides frame her words differently to make her words fit their case. And I just thought she was so fascinating and I wanted to know mm. more about this woman. So every student, of course, like we do today, had to stand up in front of the class and make a presentation about what they had done. And I thought, I'm gonna do something unusual. I think Pudentilla is fascinating and her voice seems to matter. And I thought, what better way than to give Pudentilla a voice? So I walked into the room and delivered a monologue as Pudentilla. As I started to talk, I watched the people's faces, the people's, I watched their faces as they yes. gradually realized what is going on here? This, this, this person, she always does everything just so, and this is not a presentation. <laughs> and so I delivered this monologue uh, and I passed around after I talked um, my handout and what it was, was the monologue with a footnote. Every single sentence was grounded in a classical text. Everything I said was grounded in that time, in that moment. For me, Pudentilla, it was like a feminist epiphany. It was this recognition that one can take a risk and it can pay off. Uh, and ever after, I've tried to take pedagogical risks, uh, just expanding what it is I do. And I credit James O'Donnell for that, for making that learning space 
where I could do something risky and I wasn't slammed down, but it was encouraged, it was rewarded, and I could give agency to women in the past. There is so much to love here. I love the phrase <laughs> feminist epiphany. I love what young Beth Pollard chose to do in that class. I love that the professor had created a space where that fit. Yes. I love a monologue bristling with footnotes. <laughs> and I love that clearly at this moment, you could have stayed in your history program or moved over into an MFA in playwriting. It could have could gone have, multiple it, directions. It could have gone either way, DJ. It Speaking could of comics, there's a whole multiverse of Beth Pollard's doing other things. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now I'm thinking about that. <laughs> there is a multiverse. <sighs> Let's turn to teaching. I wanted to talk with you about your teaching because you keep turning up in my teaching training. Two years ago, when we retreated from campus, our university had a summer course development institute, and you were one of the faculty members who was joining the instructional team there. Two years later, I have just completed a semester-long course development institute, which shockingly, after more than 20 years of teaching at the university level, is the first time I've had formal training in teaching. And you were again one of the instructors that was part of that course. We also have a mutual student who was raving about you. So I want to know. Miss Pollard to you, DJ. It's no, no, no. <laughs> so not. So Dr. Pollard. <laughs> You are so Dr. Pollard, Beth. So I want to know, when did you start taking teaching seriously? And where did you learn how to teach? Oh, wow. Um, okay, great question. Uh, I, I think I started taking teaching seriously from the very first time I taught. Uh, you know, as we were talking about you know that that humility that charge that comes mm -hmm. from teaching um I, I i felt it from the very beginning uh but university of pennsylvania where i did my grad work um mm -hmm. had a program that encouraged the professors to develop courses that engaged topics in a writing intensive way and uh, students wrote drafts revised the drafts rewrote the ta gave feedback and it was submitted as a portfolio at the end. And it gave this sense that what you do in the classroom is a process. Uh, and I think that that idea of teaching as a process has influenced me ever since. It, it's, it's continual, it, it will never be perfect and it will always require revision. I love that. So you were fortunate enough to have a professor for whom you were TAing, who was modeling really inclusive pedagogy for you. And you were included in the pedagogical plan for that class. Exactly. I, ever since I've been stunned that at a at an Ivy League institution where I mm -hmm. know that professor was struggling to do the publications required to get tenure, uh, to get full, that that he threw himself into that process of training the next generation. I don't even know where he found the time for it or the motivation, but he did. And it influenced teams of TAs over years. That doesn't come as a big surprise to me. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I hope is that these, um, I don't want to call them two tracks, but these identities of what it means to be a professor can be more closely intertwined uh, for the benefit of the professor and of the students. Beth, as we were planning for this podcast, you offhandedly joked 
and I'm going to quote you, I've reached an age at which all my mentors are either retired or dead. And you laughed about it, but then you added, and I'm quoting again, we're carrying on a legacy. And I think that's worth talking about. Can you tell me how you see your teaching as part of a legacy? DJ, thank you for asking me that question. And oh, I'm going to try not to get to teary as I, as I answer it. You know, I, as a kid, I was never quite sure what I wanted to be. But if you ask me what I wanted to be, the answer would frequently be, I want to be important. I want to make <laughs> a difference. I, I don't know. That, that was it. I, and I, I think it was two history teachers along the way that helped me find what it meant to be important. Uh, two of them in particular, um, Mrs. McDuffie, uh, my, Mrs. Mary McDuffie, uh, my 10th grade AP US history teacher, and uh, Professor Tom Parker, my very first history teacher in college at North Carolina State University. Um, what is it specifically about one of them that you feel you're you're still doing today or what's what's the trace that we could draw from then to now uh so uh, so let me tell you about both of them and so uh, you, you can decide which one makes the the better story uh but uh, what i'll say is uh, mrs mcduffie taught me how to question and how to question uh, fearlessly. This is an important maybe. thing to learn in 10th grade, right? Yeah, I, I recall distinctly my very first real research paper. I decided for myself that I wanted to explore the impact of women's vote in the very first presidential election after women got the right to vote in the United States. So I wanted to know in the early 20th century, what impact did women have in their first presidential election? I, and, and the first book I found made the simple statement that women's vote had zero impact other than to double the numbers because women just voted as their husbands did or as their husbands told them to. Hmm. And I went back to Mrs. McDuffie and I was like, oh, Mrs. McDuffie, I, I have to come up with a new topic because so-and-so said women had no impact. And Mrs. McDuffie changed my life right there in that moment. She said, one scholar says one thing and you're gonna let that stop you? No, you're not changing <laughs> topics. Keep digging. And, and I remembered wow. that ever since that she said, no, no, you're not going to stop just because someone tells you something. You're going to keep going. Uh, and that was, uh, that was foundational for me, uh, yes. that fearless questioning. Um, now, Tom Parker, uh, he was my very first history teacher, very first semester of college in a class that was ancient world to 180 AD. And at this point, I was a chemical engineer. I, I applied to college to be a chemical engineer. I thought, you know, that's the hardest, that's the most difficult, it's the most competitive. I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply to the chemical engineering program. But then this I is took a podcast, it. so nobody can see my face. <laughs> but I got really bug eyed. That's a surprise. I really thought I was going to be a chemical engineer, but I signed up, of course, for a history class, very first semester, and uh, it was Tom Parker's uh, Ancient World to 180 AD, and I remember watching this guy, and I, I got to say, I'm an 18-year-old. I thought this guy was a bit like Indiana Jones. I didn't paint I love you on my eyelids, but I just thought he was <laughs> so fascinating, uh, and you know, he spent the summers digging in Jordan, and he taught his material with such gusto. I just thought this guy mm -hmm. was so cool, and I remember thinking, is is it possible to do something you love that much for your entire life? Uh, and, and that was balanced yeah. with my other 
think that I'm like, this guy gets paid for this. I, I was just <laughs> amazed. I, and so, uh, so it was his enthusiasm that inspired me. Uh, but, but also the challenge he laid for me, I, I, my very first history test, I got the lowest score I ever got on any test in college ever uh-huh. um, on the test from him. It was a C plus and on the test in all caps in the front of the blue book, see me. And, uh-huh. uh, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Yeah. I had just come, I just mentioned I'd been valedictorian, right. As, as right. a high schooler. So I go in, I'm like a C plus I'm like seven weeks into college, what's happening to me. And so I had to get the courage to go to office hours. And he explained to me that history was more than a fact dump, uh, that he was an archeologist, but it was not his job to excavate the answer on the test. Uh, that I needed to make my argument, and, and and that really stuck with me. That that history is an mm-hmm. argument that that you need to make that mm-hmm. argument. I mentioned to you that they they've both passed away. Mrs. McDuffie and and mm-hmm. Tom Parker have both passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. McDuffie a while ago. Uh, Tom just this last fall. And I genuinely hope I can honor them with my teaching. I, I got to say, if if I can inspire just one or two students, as much as Mrs. McDuffie and Tom Parker uh, have inspired me, I will have done my job. To question fearlessly and to more than just deliver facts, but to make an argument and perhaps even tell a story. Exactly. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, DJ. 